we keep looking for the silver bullet in climate change, but what we need is silver buckshot. It has to touch every part of what we do in business and in life. The first step to vision. I know people are curious who don't have vision, but I don't think I know anybody who has vision who doesn't have curiosity. Because you can't aim for tomorrow if you aren't asking what tomorrow might look like. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Jim Coulter. Jim is a co-managing partner of the TPG Rise Fund and managing partner of TPG Rise Climate Fund. He is a co-founder, executive chairman, and until recently, the co-CEO of TPG, which is one of the largest private equity funds in the world, and a leader in the alternative asset space, managing $120 billion in assets for a principled focus on innovation. Jim has served on over 35 corporate boards in his career, as well as numerous charitable boards, including the Stanford University Board of Trustees and the Board of Trustees of Dartmouth College. Jim is a graduate of Dartmouth College received an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Jim, welcome to the podcast. As a founder and leader of one of the world's largest and most prominent private equity funds, you've been a part of the development and transformation of the institutional private equity business in America. I've been an admirer of yours for many years, and it's been a pleasure working with you on the TPG Rise Climate Fund. So I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Jim, let's start at the beginning. You grew up in Lockport, New York, outside of Buffalo, working on a family farm. What did you take away from this early experience? You're an efficient and prodigious worker. Is that where you got the work ethic? I, I think we're all shaped by how we're brought up and our early jobs. And from 12 to 22, my primary job was first working on and eventually running our family fruit and vegetable farm. And uh, an August day for me would be getting up at 4.30 in the morning, jumping in a 1956 Dodge truck, driving to the Niagara Falls Farmer's Market, where I stood behind a folding table selling corn, fruit, and vegetables that we'd raise. That would end about noon. I'd go back just for the heat of the day to do the work uh, in the fields and get up and do it again the next day. So 14 hours a day, six days, often seven days a week, three straight months. Pretty formative experience. I think I, I really probably took two things from it. First of all, as you point out, it gave me context for hard work. I remember, Hank, uh, interviewing with your old firm, Goldman Sachs, and listening to one of the VPs tell me how hard I was going to work. And in the back of my mind, a little voice was saying, there is nothing you can do to me in an air-conditioned building in a suit that is going <laughs> to be hard work. Yeah, And that continues to today. And the other thing about farming, which is important, is uh, farming is something that takes immense patience, but at a moment, it's the time. So for months, you tend to a crop, and if you miss it by a day, you miss it. Yeah. And that lesson's been important in business, patience and action. Yep, for sure. Now, Jim, you and I are both Dartmouth College alums. What was the transition like from Lockport to Dartmouth? What do you most value about your time at Dartmouth? You know, I went to a large public high school and I was, the, I think, the first student to go to Dartmouth, one of the few students who went to the Ivy League, and immediately learned a really interesting mixture that served me well, Hank, of humility and confidence. Humility because I got to Dartmouth and realized not only was I a, a large fish in a very small pond, but there were bigger ponds and oceans beyond those ponds that I had no idea. And I have to admit, I was, I was pretty intimidated. But fast forward four years, I, I finished in the top 10 of the class. I, I played rugby, ran winter carnival, and uh, I knew that I could compete in that environment. And, and to this day, whenever I walk in a room, I bring that humility because there's stuff you just don't know in all parts of life. But I also bring a belief that I can compete. And, and one last thing, uh, I think this probably served you well, Hank. Dartmouth was good for its breadth. I was an engineer undergrad, and there were other places that I might have gotten a technical education. But the things that stuck with me were art history, French, things that I wouldn't have taken in a different place. And they became more important as the years went on. Jim, I feel the same way. 
you know, there's nothing like a liberal arts education where you learn to think and express yourself and you, you get exposed to all sorts of subjects. And I was an English major, right? Even though I went on to a career in finance. So you were also a financial aid student. And I know you worked at Dartmouth to help pay your way. But tell our listeners how you spent December during your college days. You know, I, I had to work all through college. And one of the most interesting jobs I ever had, I hated it at the time, Hank, but it's, it's turned out to have I've grown more fond of it over time, is uh, we got out at Dartmouth early around Thanksgiving time. So I had the month of December off. And I took a job for four years working for a local farmer selling Christmas trees in the market in downtown Buffalo. So I want you to think about December on the shores of Lake Erie outside all day selling Christmas trees. That wind blows pretty hard off of Lake Erie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know that from Chicago. Yeah. And uh, a, couple, a couple of lessons why I've become fond of it over time. First of all, um, if you want to learn about group decision making, watch a family walk onto a Christmas tree lot and choose a Christmas tree. Who the real decision maker is, how that decision is making. I think every time I walk into investment committee, I bring something from that experience. I also learned a ton about business. You know, the farmer refused to put prices on the trees. He believed in what we would now call dynamic pricing. And my job, Hank, was to watch a family walk onto a lot and to decide what price I could get from them. And also, as we got closer to the 25th, prices got really variable because it was, you know, an airplane seat the day after a trip is not worth much. A Christmas tree on the 26th is not worth much. So the idea of like, how do you size people up and how did you dynamically price is something that has stayed with me a long time. Now, Jim, after Dartmouth, you took a job at Lehman Brothers in New York. Why did you decide to go to Wall Street? From where I came from, that was like an exotic job. It turned out, hey, my final decision, it came down to well, last night I had to make it was either to go to Wall Street or take a job running a rig for Schlumberger in, uh, in Africa. They had this uh, management program where they sent you out into the wild to actually run a rig for a few years, and it was the highest paying job offered. For me, New York was almost as exotic. I had no idea what an investment bank was, but I'd had a few of my friends from the year ahead work there, and they said, a lot of smart people, and I could learn a lot, so I just jumped in. It's a different kind of hard work. You know, if someone who worked on a farm and knew what it was like to be in a hayloft at 90 degrees stacking hay, I, I knew what hard physical work was, but it's a different kind of work and it's terrific experience. Now, as your financial career progressed, you went from Wall Street to Stanford Business School. But I want to focus on now is Jim Coulter, the investor, and your 37-year career in private equity. In particular, I'm interested in how that career has played a role in and given you a front row seat for the development of this $10 trillion behemoth that is called the private equity industry today. So that's a lot to cover. Uh, but we're going to do our best to cover it today. And let me begin with a simple question. Studies show that private equity investment has outperformed other asset classes and investors prove they believe that because they've been pouring increasing amounts of money for decades into private equity. So Jim, how is it that private equity has performed so well? How do you explain it? Because you know, I, I, I looked at some numbers recently and Hedge funds have underperformed the equity market for years. Private equity has outperformed the equity market, outperformed the bond market. How is that possible? I wish I could tell you that it was because we were somehow smarter, better than other investors. But actually, if you really look at it, private equity is just a better investing business model. And, and let me explain that, Hank. I think of us as investors with a better toolkit. I started my career actually when I was working for the Bass family, also doing public stock picking. It is hard. There are whole agencies set up to make sure that you have no advantages in figuring it out. When you uh, try to make decisions, you are titrated a small amount of information to make those decisions on. And so the tools that a public equity investor have are pretty blunt and the box is pretty light. You can buy or sell, you can't change anything. Uh, you try to get small information advantages. I want you to think about private equity now. When we ask questions to companies, they actually answer them. Public markets are legal for them to answer them. They, they answer them. It's called due diligence. And once we get information, 
we essentially don't just have to buy and sell the companies. We can make changes to management. We can help them on strategy. We can do acquisitions to build it. Each of these things are a tool to allow us to generate higher returns. So if, if you're a smart investor and you have better tools, the question shouldn't be why you outperform. The question ought to be why wouldn't you outperform? And so private equity really is a way for investors to express a broader set of skills over an increasing market. Makes sense. Now let's discuss the evolution of the industry in your career, because I've watched it from afar. You've watched it close up. Stories are best told as you know, with a beginning, a middle and the end. So let's walk through where your career and the industry were in the early days, the arc of your career and the industry over the last 30 years. And let's end with your insider's view of the industry today, as well as the new chapter your career has entered, where you are really leading an effort at TPG on climate investing and social impact investing. So let's begin with the early days. Of course, private equity has been around as long as capitalism itself. And, you know, investors are practicing private equity all around the world. And, and they're practicing it very effectively with the same entrepreneurial flair that we saw the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts evidencing, you know, in, in the U.S. 100 years ago. But as a potential asset class, it perhaps came to prominence in the public eye with Gibson greeting buyout. I, I remember reading all about it, watching it when I was at Goldman Sachs in, in 1981. So tell us about the early phase of your career and the state of the industry in your private equity journey, beginning with the Bass family in Texas in 1986. I, I first came across what became the private equity industry. And by the way, Hank, we, I was talking to someone from KKR recently, and we agreed that we think the industry was actually named private equity all the way out in 1997. It didn't even really have a name at this point. It was called buyouts. Um, I, called it, I, called, I called it leverage buyout because they're That's right. totally different than it was today. It was put on buy something, put a lot of debt on it, it cut costs, right? Absolutely. In the, um, the early days, you're right, Wes Ray, another Treasury Secretary, William Simon, and his partner had put together the Gibson Greetings deal. I was at Lehman Brothers. We represented them. And I was told at the time, this may or may not be true, that I wrote the first computer buyout model in 1984 on VisiCalc because I was an engineer. We used to do everything by hand then. You remember, Hank? I wrote the first model on a green screen with like blinking cursor that allowed us to change assumptions with debt loads over time. So that I first ran into the industry. Then I was intrigued. When I left business school in 86, I entered this, this thing. And the thing was dominated at that point by a very small set of players. There were a few families, arguably the Basses, the Pritzkers, the Rails Brothers, and a few small funds. The ones that people knew were um, Force Midlittle. KKR had about a $500 million fund at that point. And Warburg Pincus was starting to move out of venture into that area. And those small players began to become more and more active, particularly as the junk bond market was created in the late 80s. And that was really the origin story of institutional private equity. You're right, it had always been practiced by individuals. Private equity at that point was essentially the idea of buying steady businesses. You only bought franchise businesses. You never changed management. You would push them on efficiency, but you would never change management. And the number one tool, to my point of a toolkit, Hank, was leverage. So it came out of Wall Street in part because Wall Street tools were the early tools. Small industry, very limited toolbox. Then you were one of the pioneers of the early creation of private equity funds. So you described a KKR and, and Forsman Little at that time, how, how would you describe the industry and your, your position in it? And, and I think maybe the way to start this would be, you know, one of the signature deals of the early days of your career and the industry. And I remember at the time, I remember this very well. I didn't know it to you at the time, but the Continental Airlines bankruptcy buyout, because it looked like it was going under. And there are going to be all sorts of job losses and turmoil in the industry. And you and David Bonderman structured in 1993, structured this 
buyout to launch TPG. So tell our listeners about putting together the deal to save Continental Airlines and what was distinctive about this investment. And here, Jim, so you were with, with the Basses, which were a, a private family group doing private equity for them. And then you left the Basses with the Continental Airlines bankruptcy deal to start TPG. Talk a little bit about that. You know, we had begun to explore what I thought of then as the outer edges of the buyouts business, Hank. And uh, we had restructured with the Bass family American Savings, which was kind of making uh, lemonade out of the lemons of the uh, SNL crisis. We had been large buyers of RTC real estate. So there was a moment where the industry began to change from what I described before, buying steady businesses, just using debt, no operation change to something new. And so the Continental Airlines deal was, I think, a bit of a watershed event of a new type of private equity. Let me take you to that moment. Continental Airlines was the largest bankruptcy in US history at that point, operating company bankruptcy. It was the most hated company in America. It had been put together uh, out of a series of mergers by Frank Lorenzo. It was known for one thing, which was absolutely consistently losing your bags, no matter where you flew at any time. And it had gone into bankruptcy and shocking in today's environment, Hank, but no one showed up. There was this massive bankruptcy. And you're right, 40,000 jobs would have been lost unless somebody figured out how to help this company emerge from bankruptcy. And David and I were just exiting the Bass family and had been looking at it there. And with Bob's blessing, we essentially decided to take on this problem. That's Bob Bass's blessing, right? Bob Bass's blessing. So we went out, we had no firm. In fact, we called the partnership that we bid Air Partners, which everyone thought it was because it was an airline. I think it was actually because like an air guitar, there was nothing there. There was the two of us, we had no money. Uh, we were trying to figure it out. And in retrospect, it was a little bit crazy. You should not try to start a career taking on the biggest, ugliest thing in, in corporate America. But it was the beginning of a different type of private equity, which was private equity is problem solving. And so we took on this, this problem. And it was a combination of financial skills, operating skills, and change-based skills. We closed hubs. We changed aircraft orders. I personally placed a $3.5 billion Boeing order, not knowing what I was doing. But we arranged the emergence of this thing called Continental Airlines. People thought we were a little nuts. Fast forward, though, the reason it became important is it showed the power of private equity to solve this sort of problem. Within five or six years, we'd made 10 times our money. and Continental Airlines had gone from the worst to the first rated airline in the country. Uh, and we had achieved both financial returns and operating returns. And for, quite frankly, I ended up with a lot of gray hair in the well, process. Well, well I, I remember watching it from afar and saying, I can't believe this. What are these guys doing? Because everyone knows airlines are not profitable, right? A capital yeah. intensive business, not profitable, commodity business. How, how can they do this? Next to farming, I learned most though from the airline business because it is a tough, tough business. And if you can operate well in that environment, other things seem a little easier. This question of how you described private equity. At the time, I moved to San Francisco as we were beginning TPG. And the fastest way to shut someone up at a cocktail party is is to answer the question, like, what do you do? I, I Private equity, no one had any idea what it was. In fact, in our family, I went to our, our first grade parent teacher conference and the teacher said to me, so great to have a parent who works for the zoo. And it turns out my daughter, having no idea what I did, was telling everyone because I did some terrible work for the zoo that I worked for the zoo. So I had a long talk with her trying to explain what it was and later on, somebody else asked what we did. And, and she said something that still stays with me. She, she said, my dad gives money to companies and he hopes that they give it back. Uh, <laughs> and that's still a fair description of private equity and, and what we do. But it was really an unknown industry at that moment. It's surprising how many of the average Americans still think of it as sort of a Wall Street finance industry. But I want to, to go back to the arc of the industry. So from those early days, I watched the industry go from leveraged buyouts to cost cutting with an emphasis on efficiency, right? Which is what you saw with Gibson Greeting and so on. Uh, they go from there to building and growing businesses with below average leverage, right? So right now, I think if you ask 
many people about private equity wouldn't think that these are growing businesses that have got below average, got less debt on them. I've seen it spread around the world. I've watched it grow from a niche product to a major piece of the largest and most sophisticated institutional investment portfolios in the world. So talk us through this transformation. The middle decades of your career, 1995 to 2005, and then 2005 to 2015. So talk about the evolution of this industry, Jim. Yeah, so uh, we've done the Continental deal. So let me take you to 1995, as you suggested. It was a time we had a hard time getting Goldman Sachs to cover us. McKinsey wouldn't do business with us because they we we they only want to do year long. Bain did a little business. We're now the largest business line for McKinsey private equity, largest business line for for Bain, and one of the largest business lines for for Wall Street. So, but at that moment in 1995, the entire industry AUM best number I can find is about 60 billion today. That's about seven trillion. So this is an industry that, over the period I'm going to describe, grew a hundredfold. Yeah. So AUM stands for assets under management. So just a huge, right. huge growth. So it's it's a way of measuring the size and reach of the industry. So um, the reason it grew is it basically began to move along a series of vectors, and, and let me touch on each of them, Hank, because it's important to an understanding of the industry. First of all, what people normally watch, but it's a bit of an output, is it grew in size. And that growth in size was surprising because for almost 20 years, and I'm sure you had this discussion at uh, Goldman, there was a sense that there was too much money in private equity. When we were a $100 billion industry, when we were a trillion dollar industry, there was, I did huge studies on like why there wasn't too much money. And today we're a $6, 7000000000000 trillion industry. And I think the same question is there. The world has always underestimated the scale of it. I've underestimated the scale of it. And the reason is private equity is picking up share. So when I started in the business, private equity was about 0.4% of the entire global equity market. Fast forward to today, after all that growth, Hank, the markets have grown also. We're at about 6% of the global equity markets. So we are a better type of investing, proven, not applicable for everything. Apple, you know, Apple shouldn't be a private company, but we're a better type of investing and we're picking up share over time. See, and just to explain one other thing for the listeners. So private equity is a better form of investing if you're a sophisticated investor and you're prepared to lock up the investment for a while. You know, if you invest in the, in, in the public market, you can buy and sell, you have liquidity. But if you're willing to put money away that you don't need for a while, then you're going to get a better return by and large with private equity. That's that's a good caveat. So we have traditionally had higher returns, but lower liquidity. I'll, I'll come back to that point. So the second, so first we've grown in size. The second vector we grew on was geography. The industry started really in the U.S. and uh, arguably the U.K. There were some small firms in the U.K. And over time, if we look today, it's about 50% North America today with the other 50% split about half and half, 22% each between Asia and, and Europe and the rest of the world about 5%. So we've gone from a US business to a broadly international business. The TPG were invested in companies with headquarters in over 30 different countries. The third vector, so not just size, not just geography, is the industries we served has changed. And, and this has been one of the biggest changes, Hank. When we started, put aside Continental for a moment, which I said was a bit of an outlier. The early days of the industry were in steady businesses, metal bending, supermarkets, cable TV. The one thing that, and I could show you presentations, so the one thing you did not do in private equity was technology or healthcare, because healthcare was regulated and technology was too risky. And I remember a meeting in 1996 with David Bonner and myself, they asked us what we didn't do. And I said, we don't do technology. And I walked out, looked at David and said, that answer didn't seem right. So we did one of the first tech buyouts within a year because we built a technology practice. Today, healthcare and technology are the two largest industries in private equity. Amazing. So, so that, so the way to think about it is not only do we grow in size, we grew in, in aperture. Other things that we changed, uh, the tools changed. So you're right. In the early days, Hank, it was a lot about leverage. Today, TPG is less leveraged across our portfolio than the S&P 500, so it's no longer about leverage. And the next thing is we, we get pretty good at efficiencies. People call it cost takeout, but really it's efficiencies. Today, our tools are in things like Salesforce effectiveness, digital marketing. There are new tools to change the top line 
of the businesses we invest in. So not only do we change the size, not only do we change the geography, not only do we change industries, we change the tools. And then finally, two other things. The people who have funded us have changed. And this has been one of the reasons the industry has grown. As there has become this widespread understanding of the advantages of private equity from a returns point of view, not always, but over long periods of time, we've moved from being funded from a few families and a few endowments to, and Hank, I'd be interested, you, you and I talked to a lot of them around uh, TBG Rise Climate, uh, the major pools of capital in the world, they're not asking, should they do private equity? It's how much should they do? Absolutely. How much and in what areas and with what firms, but there's no doubt. So they all know that there's got to be a reasonable part of their portfolio put in something that's going to be less liquid, but going to offer them much better returns. And then the last thing that's happened is the industry definition has changed. So early on, as, as you and I pointed out, Hank, it was kind of like buyouts. That was the, the core of the industry. Today, we've moved into private debt. We've moved into secondaries. Uh, we've moved into GP-led secondaries. We do restructuring. So the, the adjacency of products has been driving substantial growth. And just to, to, to explain, the GP of the general partner, you know, that secondary is a general partner, is TPG is a general partner of its funds. And secondaries are a way of providing liquidity to uh, private equity investors who don't want to wait until the, the cash flows at the end and they want to be able to sell. It dates me a little bit, but what, what's been interesting is for 20 years, the industry has been larger and generally performing better than the skeptics would have expected, but you've constantly had to change. And I'm sure you saw this in your own career. It was always about next year's ideas and, and evolving with that. If you go back to if you go back to 1995, there were 22 funds greater than a billion dollars. Half of them have failed and gone away. And today there's well over a thousand funds with greater than a billion dollars. So you've had to survive and adapt. It's an interesting thing because I've watched all sorts of companies over the years. And I thought if you're you know, an industrial company or a technology company, you know, you certain things have to stay the same, you know, either fundamentals, their culture and so on. But everything else has to be prepared to change because if you're not progressing or changing, you're falling behind or you're dying. And in finance, that's even more true because, you know, if you're an industrial company and you've got bricks and mortar and you've, you know, you, you invest in plants, you can only move so quickly. But in finance, there's constant innovation. And if you don't keep up with the innovation, you fall behind, right? And so in finance, you know, as important as the capital is you're raising, the most important capital are the people you have, right? That's your human capital and being able to have those people and innovate and, and have that culture. So I, I want to talk about something you and I both went through from a different vantage point. So you had this extraordinary growth and then you had some irrational exuberance and there was this moment called the global financial crisis. You know, I, I'm familiar with that in a very personal way, but but every investor that went through it is, let me tell you, it, it, it impacted us all. So what were the lessons for the industry and about the industry from that moment? What did you learn going through that global financial crisis and, and how did that change the industry? Well, you were, you were in the ultimate hot seat there, uh, Hank, but our seat was a little warm too. And uh, on one side, from time to time, as you know, we were called in to try to bail out some of the companies that, that eventually you had to bail out. We had a front row seat in watching how stressed the system was. But we had our part in that. And what I learned about the industry is that there is a, a fundamental challenge in the industry, which is it tends to measure performance on backward activity. And whatever has worked, people raise more money and you get a bit of a momentum machine. So through the early 2000s, ever bigger buyouts did ever more well. There was a period of time where if you were an investor and you looked at where performance was, you would pour money into big buyouts. And as a result, more money came in, the buyouts got bigger. And a lot of smart people from the investors to the GPs to the banks that were supporting it got caught in that trend. Uh, and it's taught me that the industry has a bit of a momentum machine to it and that as things are going well, you need to get more conservative. One of the things I've always said to our team is when it feels good in private equity, it's bad. And when it feels bad, it's good. 
it's often when times are tough that you're making your best investments. So the industry got too large and too levered at that period of time. Came through it okay, actually, when you look at it. And much, you know, there were, there were some dire, but it came through it okay. What that's meant for me, Hank, and we'll get into the industry today, is as we got late in this last cycle, we at TPG started pulling our horns in. And we became net sellers at a time that the industry was net buyers because we saw some of that momentum happening in a way that um, you can't totally avoid, but you can at least be aware of. So I want to explore that in a minute, but I want to come back to what you said about not being able to rely, if you're in finance, over rely on recent experience or even on historical experience. Because I think one of the things that took many investors by surprise, and I know one of the things that uh, surprised me a bit in the global financial crisis was one of the things we'd all learned was that, you know, if you had commercial mortgages and you own commercial mortgages, there was a cycle and you had to be very careful because you could lose a lot of money in commercial mortgages. You needed to back them up with, with, with a fair amount of equity. But if you looked at residential mortgages, you could go back all the way to World War II and there hadn't been a nationwide decline in housing prices. So if you owned a diversified pool of residential mortgages, the biggest risk you had wasn't that you're going to lose your money, it was that you're going to get it back too quickly. Because if interest rates dropped and I owned a home mortgage, I could refinance at a lower rate. That was true until it wasn't, right? And so the longer you're, you're in finance, the, the longer you learn how it's risky and you need to be conservative. You and I both agree that it's really dangerous if someone, whenever someone says this time is different. The other thing is when someone says no one has ever lost money doing X, <laughs> they just haven't lost money doing X yet. Yeah, that's and, exactly and that, right. Uh, that's and, something to keep an eye on. And, and you can... And you, people don't lose a lot of money on a bad idea because they don't go into a bad idea. But you can have too much of a good idea, like securitization, right? You can, you can have too much and, and go too far. So let's get to the present. Institutional private equity is one of the most interesting industries in the global finance landscape. How should we think about its scope, scale, and place in the investment market? So talk a bit about this. The industry has grown up in a way I didn't anticipate to be a very substantial player in the overall economic landscape. So as I said, assets under management today, north of $7 trillion. That is a large number. But let me talk about that reach in a different way. I'm going to focus just on North America as a scaling mechanism here, Hank. But uh, today in the public market, there's about 4,500 U.S.-based public companies, down from 8,500 back in the mid-90s. So the number of public companies have actually been shrinking, and the public market has become the domain for large, old companies. The average age of companies is going up in the public market. If you look at the private equity industry, there are, in the U.S. today, about 2,600 private equity managers so half as many as stocks. And together, there is 25,000 private equity deals, active private equity deals. This is according to Prequent. So essentially, there are six times more companies in the private market. They're smaller. They're not you know, trillion-dollar companies, but they touch every part of the economic landscape, unlike the early days when it was cable TV and, and uh, supermarkets. And so that industry, bigger in numbers and of companies has become an important place for young, growing, dynamic companies. Jim, something else that's interesting is, of course, private equity is global. And when TPG raises money, you raise it from institutional investors and investors all over the world. But if you look at the institutional private equity market, Okay, if you look at that, Americans, American firms have been the leaders. Most of the largest firms are American-based. Now, there's some pretty strong ones, you in Asia and some in Europe. But why do you think this is? Why do you think the leaders are American firms? I think the Americans move first. So uh, to give you a sense, we, we moved to Asia in 94, very early. We moved to Europe. We were the first U.S. platform to open an office in Europe in 97. And therefore, we got sort of a beachhead. And if you went to our Asian offices, you would think it is a totally Asian firm, just as the Goldman Asian offices might have been mostly Asian, Asian locals. Uh, the same in Europe. And so before the European and Asian markets formed up, the U.S. firms got a foothold. 
and were able to build a practice. It hasn't worked as well the other way. So the European firms who have tried to move into the U.S. have had a tougher time and almost no Asian firms have successfully moved into the U.S. So it's a little bit timing. Secondly, I think there is a trust in U.S. law as the base of these partnerships. And so that base, the skill set, the legal set, first mover advantage all meant that the U.S. has been, U.S. firms have been not the dominant players, but certainly the leading players in uh, the global landscape. It's interesting you say that because I also, I, I think a lot of it is there's the infrastructure here. You know, there's the, the legal, the accounting infrastructure and, and, and a trust in U.S. law. Uh, I, I think that's, that is significant. Now, we've, something Jim, you and I have discussed and sort of joked about, there are very wide differences between the public perception of private equity and its practice today. For example, I get here referred to all the time as Wall Street, you know, and listen, I, 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 I don't think of Wall Street as being a dirty word. Trust me, I, I think Wall Street is a very, very important part of America. I, I really do. But I also think it's, it's in, in some way sort of amusing that uh, the private equity, much of it is referred to as Wall Street and using TPG as an example. And of course, there are a number of other very successful, in some cases, bigger and maybe even more successful firms in the industry. Describe private equity today and what you think of describing TPG as a Wall Street firm. You know, I, I don't want to overplay that we're misunderstood, but quite frankly, the industry has done a terrible job in explaining what it does and how. Uh, Hank, I don't know if you remember, but in the early days, because we were private, we deliberately, I, we used to hire a PR firm to no comment for us. And in fact, we built a website that had a banner that said under work because we knew people would look for it, but we didn't want to have a website. We continued that well into the, the global financial crisis. We didn't want anyone to know what we were up to. That was a mistake because at some point, if you don't write your story, someone else will write it for you. So for me, just a few perceptions that, that kind of linger that I think the industry needs to do a better job in explaining. First of all, this idea of Wall Street. Saying that private equity is like is Wall Street is like saying uh, Americans are British. You know, we, at one point we came from there and we may have been a, a, you know, largely populated by from Britain, but uh, the country is at a very different place today. So if you look at our own firm based in San Francisco and Fort Worth, if you look at many of the major firms, uh, they have nothing to do with Wall Street, but the history of it still harkens to that moment and essentially labels the industry as only using a piece of its toolkit, only using finance as a mechanism. So that's that, that Wall Street piece is one, but there's several other perceptions. Um, the first is that we're uh, you know, solely cost cutters. Uh, and it's interesting. In the early days, we did use our tools and we continue to, to drive efficiency. That's a good thing. But if you look at TPG today, when we go into a healthcare company, on average, we double the R&D. Our portfolio grows at much faster than the market generally. We are making our returns on growth, not on, on one-time cost cutting. You, know, you can only cut costs once. You can grow every year. So we've, we've changed that way. And this whole idea of leverage, as I said earlier, we are less leveraged in the S&P as an industry today. So the industry has changed, and I think we have not done a good job in keeping the perception up with the change. One last point, and this is something that is, is missed. There is a great deal of focus because these firms were often named after people. It gets to be a very individualized business. Um, Hank, you know, people talk about such and such a per Jim Coulter did a deal when TPG did a deal, or you know, George Roberts did a deal when KKR did a deal they get very personalized. But if you look at the vast majority of the benefits of the outperformance of private equity, they flow to the pension funds of this country and other countries, which are badly underinvested and actually need that help. So the industry, I think, has not done a good job explaining what it does, nor necessarily who probably benefits from it. Jim, now let's talk a bit about innovation. Because I've heard you say TPG is about next year's ideas. Last year, you personally illustrated that when you made the shift from the CEO of TPG to the managing partner of the $7 billion TPG Raj Climate Fund with 50 institutional investors and 28 leading corporates. It is the largest fund devoted to private equity climate investing. Now, I've 
got to watch you up close and personal because I'm the executive chairman of that fund and we work together very closely. And it's, to me, it just said a lot that you were able to step out of being co-CEO and jump right into that and and innovate to that degree. So tell our listeners about how you view the climate rift. So let's talk about climate rift, why you made the shift and how you were thinking about this challenge. Let me start with why I made the shift and then delve more deeply into the climate risk and opportunity. From many, many years of doing this, Hank, learned that next year's ideas is where the great activity comes from. Solving problems as simple as continental or as broad as the technological revolution. Those are the wealth wellsprings of where long-term returns come from. And I've always promised myself if I saw one of those opportunities like the technological revolution play through again, that we would try to position ourselves to be leaders as we had in the past. And so sitting here today, as I look forward, you know, what are the things that have to happen and will happen in our economy that need to be fueled by capital? And at the top of the list is this idea of climate change. No longer are we debating why we have to do this. At least most of us aren't debating why. And we know that we need to get to a net zero environment. But the question of how, when you get to that question, you come back to capital and the private sector. Government has its part to play. And and we see at various times government doing well or not well in its part. But we need to set up the power of investing, of capital, of ideas to address this problem. And not only is it problem solving, it is to me one of the great investment opportunities I've seen in my career and Hank in your career, This you don't see these trends as clearly as often as you might. So we decided to attack this at TPG and given this is a very complicated type of investing and something I'm personally passionate about, I shifted a large portion of my time to personally lead this effort along with you. I'll tell you, this is as important as anything you've ever done, because this challenge is a huge one. It's going to be the the largest industrial transformation, I think, in global history. And it's going to, uh, as I said, it'll play out over over decades. And we know the government isn't going to have all the money, right? It's going to need to come from the private sector. It's not going to come from the private sector unless there is an adequate return to attract the capital. What we're about is authenticity and action. If you authentically take on this problem and just get action moving, you know, I'm optimistic that progress will follow. So now I'd like you to talk a little bit about how climate investing compares and contrasts with the other big investment trends you've seen over the course of your career. Now, the one that I, I like to think about most because it's perhaps most similar in scope is the digital revolution. You know, starting in the mid-90s, and Hank, you were very involved in it, the changes in technological solutions tested the resiliency of every business, and it changed every business. It affected how every business went to market, et cetera. And so for us, this is a similar scale change, which is we're taking 100 years of how we've brought energy and materials to our economy, and we're saying we can't do that that way anymore. And so that fundamental touch every industry change is, I think, similar. The way we talk about it, as you know, Hank, is uh, we keep looking for the silver bullet in climate change, but what we need is silver buckshot. It has to touch every part of what we do in business and in life. And if you think of how technology has touched every part of your life, there's some similarities. There are, however, some big differences, and this is um, where a lot of the complexity comes up. Technology moved at the speed of bits and bytes and on Moore's Law. And if you had an idea and you wanted to put it out there, the internet was free. Someone had already built it for you. And you could do tests without a lot of capital. So in the technological revolution, it was very much about ideas with capital facilitating facilitating those ideas. The idea of pre-money. If you just had an idea, capital would come in at a marked up amount. If you look at the major technology companies today, they traded about 20 times book. So the the value created per dollar of investment is extraordinarily high. When you look at the major physical companies out there, they tend to trade at two to three times book. And what I'm saying by that is essentially this revolution will take much more capital and it will happen 
on a physical timeline, what we call the experience curve, which means that rather than Moore's law, which increases 50 times in a decade, if you could increase three or four times in a decade, you're doing well. So more capital, more physical investing, slower work, and a situation where what we do, which is provide capital to, to drive scale, is going to be even more important than it was in the technological revolution. For sure. And there's a great opportunity. There's going to be an opportunity to do a lot of good, uh, to make high returns. And also with some of the things we see out there, there are people that are going to lose plenty of money also because there's a few charlatans yeah. out there and there's a fair number of people that are pretty naive. But, but, you know, uh, but there's also, I mean, it's also something we got to do. Like, at the end of the day, if you know your Instagram account doesn't work well, you get a little ticked. But if, if we don't solve this, this yeah. revolution is something that, that oh, we've absolutely. got to solve. I think we're talking about the future of life on this planet as we know it. So I think we're dealing with an existential risk. So I, I think that's why I said, I think this is the most important thing you've done in your career and you've done some important things. It's by far the most important thing. So Jim, I'm going to switch gears now because you're an entrepreneur who has played a big role in building your own successful business. And during your time at the helm of TPG, You've worked with hundreds of CEOs. So you've seen some great ones. You've seen some good ones. You've seen some terrible ones. What are Jim Coulter's key principles for successful business leadership? <laughs> Mike, I, I think I need to come back and ask you that question. If you think about your seat where you called on CEOs and helped finance them for decades in my seat where I've literally, we have 290 companies in our portfolio today. I get to watch 290 CEOs up close and personal. And whenever I read um, books about management leadership, they tend to have a lot of the same points, communication, ability to build teams, et cetera. And, and I would say, absolutely. It's a little bit like saying a football player has to be a decent athlete. Yes. But having done this for a long time, there's a few kind of small things that, that I look for that Help me, and there's a long list, but let me just hit a, hit a couple. First is, um, I'm a big fan of curiosity. Something I see in you, Hank. Like you, you've had a hell of a career, and yet you're as interested in tomorrow as as anyone I know. As a business leader, you can be really good doing the same thing over and over again. But for a long time business leader, you have to be curious about what tomorrow might look like. Curiosity is the first step to vision. I know people are curious who don't have vision, but I don't think I know anybody who has vision who doesn't have curiosity because you can't aim for tomorrow if you aren't asking what tomorrow might look like. So I'm always trying to figure out how curious is this person. Second thing I'd look for is the ability to deal with complexity. Like you ran Goldman Sachs. Like it was very different from when you were running Midwest Investment Bank to actually running Goldman Sachs. And the way I think about it is a CEO plays three-dimensional chess. First board is essentially what you do day to day. You are a great banker. But all of a sudden, now you have to lead an organization of bankers. And that's a different task than just doing it yourself. And then there's a third dimension. When you're running a company, you have to deal with regulators. You have to deal with global trends. You have to deal with strategy. And people who are good business leaders at any one of those, at any one of those uh, boards are not a complete leader unless they can play all three. So I have to invest, I have to build a team to invest, and I have to think about next year's ideas all at once to even pretend to be a business leader. Um, third thing, and this is uh, maybe a little less attractive than some of the others, I always look for the edge. Being a business leader, you have to call balls and strikes. You have to occasionally make decisions that people around you, even people you very much like and respect, will not agree with. And that's not easy. So empathy, yes, got to have all those things. Those are, those are table stakes. But if I can't find the edge, I wonder about it. And the last point is, um, this is something I pay more and more attention to, Hank, is authenticity. You know, early in my career, people would ask me, like, what do I have to do to be a CEO. And if you're asking that question, you're probably missing the point. You have to be you. And, and a CEO starts with the person. And if that person tries to be something they're not, it never works. So the authenticity of how they approach something is key. So there's a longer list, but those are four things that are kind of some of my pro tips beyond the obvious. And I agree with all of them. And I may use different language to explain them, but you're right. So I'm going to switch gears now. So what advice 
does Jim Coulter have for young people starting out in their careers today? Today's world is a challenging, complex world. What advice do you have? I would say there's three things I tell people to, to think about. Think about the moment, think about the past, and think about you. So when I say the moment, too often people look back and assume that what the person several levels above them did at their point in their career, what their parents might have done is the same path to success that would have taken me at my moment to go work for IBM. And so looking at not where success came from historically, but where it is today is a place to start. But it's not just the moment because careers I've come to understand are 30, 40 year arcs, Hank. And so the question is, are you putting yourself on the right arc? And there's, there's two ways I think about that. Are you getting involved in an industry? You caught investment banking at the perfect time. I caught private equity at arguably a perfect time that is on the rise because it's always better to travel with the current. And if you're not in an industry that's on the rise, are you getting skills that are transferable? And so think not only about where you're starting, but what your next job is and how you're getting set up for it. But the most important part, so it's the moment, it's the arc. The most important part for me is this concept of fit. And I'm often reminded that Michael Jordan wasn't that good of a baseball player. And, and so what was great about Michael, as good an athlete as he was, is he found basketball. And that, that moment of Michael and basketball was, was poetry. And too often people focus on the job they'd like or the industry they'd like without understanding what they do really well. And for me, the key question that I always ask someone who's looking for career advice is what problems do you solve well? Because if you solve problems well, whether it's people problems or technical problems, if you solve them well, you probably enjoy solving them. And if you solve them well, someone will pay them for solving them. That, And if you get in an industry where you solve problems, you can make a really interesting career. It's interesting. That's where I started off too, Jim. I started off, what is it you like and what is it you do well, right? And I guarantee you, if you may think you like it, but if you don't do it well, you're not going to like it for very long, right? And, and, and so it's not, <laughs> it's, it's not just what sounds good. Yeah, Mike, Michael went back to basketball, right? Because yeah. that's something he did yeah. well. And Yeah, and so, so Jim, this has been terrific. You've, I, I think, helped our listeners understand a not very well understood industry, and uh, you've given us a lot to think about today. So thank you very much. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.